Surprise, it's not our Adam and Eve ad. We want to tell you about our sexy little Patreon. There, you can find early episodes, bonus content like the hot goss on my ex-boyfriends, exclusive polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash candygirlpodcast and choose to be a candy slut, a sweet simp, or our virtual sugar daddies. We'll see you candy sluts and bubble butts over there. Candy Girl Podcast. Fuck me, Daddy. <laughs> hey, all you candy sluts and bubble butts. Welcome back to another episode of Candy Girl. I'm one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm Shelby. And today we are here with Caitlin Bailey from the Oldest Profession Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And yeah, we we're both so excited. Emily, when she got the email, freaked out. Like <laughs> we've, we've definitely referenced um, their podcast on our show before, mm-hmm. especially in our earlier episodes when I first joined and I was just trying to figure out what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> so I'm a very research oriented person. So that was definitely awesome. one of my go to's. So our first question for you is an obvious and easy one how did you get into sex work oh yeah sweet super obvious super easy not not complicated or all tangled up and everything at all uh it's yeah yeah no I'm I'm one of those so you know sex work I feel like we I love talking to other sex workers because I feel like I don't have to like explain myself so much but I feel like all of us in all of the work that we are doing are operating on a spectrum of choice circumstance and coercion right and because of, you know, my privilege and because of like, you know, choices that my my parents made in circumstances, I make almost all of my work decisions from a place of choice. Like I've been doing fuck all I want for the whole time. And so I got into sex work out of curiosity and sort of like a nagging sense that I was being lied to about sex and women and money and power and all of the things. And so at 17 and a half, uh, using message boards in what I now recognize to be the sort of like golden age of sex work where we had flip phones and the internet, but not like surveillance technology yet, you know, was was an overwhelmingly positive experience. And I've been curious and obsessed with old pros sort of like before that and obviously long after. You know, I started reading about courtesans, I think like the way that other little girls read about like princesses and just got like weirdly, weirdly obsessed. And then you know, tried my hand at it and then realized that like I'm better at talking about this than I am than I am doing it. So did you realize that you were being lied to about sex and power and, and women? 100%. Oh, yeah. We, like, we swim in lies about you know, lies about sex and power and men and women. It's And, and I think the, the, the big lie, and part of this is, um, you know, my father was o- is older, right? So like he was, he was almost 40 when I was born. And his father was over 60 when he was born, right? So like my dad is like, real steeped in like old ideas about people and especially women and so I was raised with this idea that men or like or rather little boys go out into the world and experience hardship and become better stronger men and little girls go out into the world and experience hardship and become tarnished right or diminished in some way and you know my dad not a feminist, right? Like not, it believes that like women are like a super special and important subspecies of people, right? But 
he's a huge fan of me. And so he he basically took the position of like, you can do anything that you want to do, but because you're a girl, you don't really have to do anything and you shouldn't do anything dangerous. And I was like, what about prostitution? And then we've been arguing about that ever since. So your parents know that you're a sex worker. They do now. They did not at the time. You know, I think it, it like it honestly, I think it just like never occurred to them. You know, my parents, my parents were folks that like, so long as I was getting good grade, like grades were the metric, right? Like so long as I was getting good grades, then there wasn't a problem. So I maintained my GPA and my parents left me alone and I was able to maintain a double life. But my parents are like not paying very close attention. Like they're, you know, they've got their own, their own stuff going on. But uh, yeah, I came out to my parents after and on accident and as a part of coming out to the world. It was my, my first one woman show, uh, Contagious, that I, I wrote and developed in New York. And I, um, that show is about coming out to my father, but I did not come out to my father. The whole play is just an exercise in what ifs. And then in promoting and publicizing and producing and performing the show, because my parents also have the internet, that's when I came out to my parents. So it's, yeah, not, I'm not, that, yeah, that was not my, my bravest moment, as they say. But when we first started the show, we had a different co-host and she was a good friend of mine and she used to come over every day and we'd record the show in my bedroom and my parents would be like, oh, what are you guys talking about? And we'd tell them and be like, we have this friend who's a sugar baby. And then <laughs> like six months into it, my mom finally listened to an episode and was like, oh my God, it's her. Like she's the sugar baby. We were like, surprise, mom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, you know, the internet has, I think, changed a lot about the way that parents and children interact with each other. It used to be that if you ran away to New York and produced an independent black box theater, one person show that like your back home family didn't have to know shit about that. But like, because of the Facebook, you, you know, great aunt Susie's weighing in on your art projects now. And it's like, I don't know if that should be fair. Totally. (laughs) Like, I don't don't know. This isn't for you. Your, your mom is probably not the, the primary demo for this podcast. Mm-mm. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of podcast, do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit about the oldest profession? Sure. Yeah. It's my, it's my absolute favorite topic. So yeah, I started, I started the oldest profession podcast in 2017 with a, a girlfriend of mine, fellow comic and old pro Wendy Starling. And we did like a season together back in the, back in the good old days when we thought that we had a functioning government. And, and, and so the first season is uh, we are, you know, sort of stand up comics first. And you can actually hear me get radicalized on the show because like Sesta Fosta happens in April of 2018 and you know I start to see the impact of this legislation and this administration on my my sex worker family and my queer family and and so you know season two is like you know a little bit more pointed and political and now with season three I've brought on a a whole team Dr. Charlene Fletcher um, who is a a PhD historian who's doing her postdoc at Brown University right now and is actually teaching a whole course on sex workers in history has come on to uh, as the historian for the show like I said we hired a fellow sex worker comic as our community manager and publicist um, you know Irene Irene Marrow, you know, a 
Marie Cecile Anderson, who is the uh, who toured with all over the country with a really great anti slut shaming band called Reformed Whores, uh, is is our audio engineer, and and so like we've we've built this thing, you know, this this production company that I really hope serves as a platform to tell better sex worker stories because like the whole the whole conceit of the show or the whole premise of the show is that you know really the same reason I got into sex work that we're being lied to about what sex work is and we can change the stories that people think that they know um, about what it means to engage in this work and you guys are part of a larger organization called decriminalized sex work correct no no actually that is yeah, no, um, I am quitting my job. So for the last two years, so I actually stopped doing the podcast in order to focus as communications director for Decriminalized Sex Work, which is a, a national advocacy organization that I helped found. But I am actually quitting my job there to focus full time on Old Pro Productions and the Oldest Profession podcast. So my last day is the end of this month. And so we've actually, yeah, we've hired, you know, a couple of other folks to step in as part of the communications department. And I'm really, really excited to see what they do with the organization. But yeah, I am, I am leaving them to focus on the Oldest Profession podcast. would love to hear a little bit about both, like, as far as the inspiration behind the Oldest Profession podcast how the show even came to be, who thought of it, mm-hmm, how you mm-hmm. how you participated. And then later on, we can talk about the organization of decriminalized sex work. But let's start yeah. with Oldest Profession. Yeah, sure. The Oldest Profession, I mean, I'm, I'm just one of those people that's like mostly motivated by like spite. And, and so like, so I, so I was working as a standup comic and I had come out as a, as a, I'd come out as a sex worker, both on stage um, in my capacity as a, as a stand-up comic and also had written the one woman show contagious, which we talked about like coming out to my dad. And so I was starting to get meetings with like boomer dudes that thought that they knew how to sell me like in the entertainment industry. And so I flew out to LA to take this meeting that my like dumb manager had set up and they wanted me to sort of like sign on the dotted line and approve this pitch for something called comedy ho, which would basically be like a tarted up version of me doing comedy and also talking about sex work. Ah, can you believe it? And I, I just knew it was wrong. It wasn't my voice. It wasn't my brand. And, and it made me really angry that they didn't want to pitch what I wanted to pitch, which was, basically sex worker history right of like me as a talking head going through like drunk history but about sex workers which is the show that I wanted to pitch and so um I got really angry and I got and I got very drunk uh in LA at a another comics abode and I woke up the next day super hungover and like absolutely goddamn determined build my own show. And that's when I called, I called Wendy and I pitched her on the idea and I called my boyfriend, spoiler alert, now husband at the time and bullied him into buying me some podcast equipment because I'm an old pro. And we started the show in, in his living room. Yeah. And so you can, and that's the, the first two seasons of the show, you know, around the second season, Wendy is really a, a comic first. And by that point I had sort of become more of a sex worker rights advocate than a comic. I was like ready to put 
comedy second and was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the stand-up comedy scene and so sort of like leaned more hardcore and more heavily into sex worker advocacy explicitly and then after a few years of that uh you know as our political system sort of crumbles around us I I'm reinvesting and sort of coming back to art and coming back to storytelling and coming back to performance as an agent of change so I'm kind of curious because when we see sex work in comedy almost always sex workers are at the butt of the joke particularly like with Tina Fey's kind of horror comedy where it's it's yeah and that's a whole nother episode but how have you tried to flip that narrative or have you was this something that you noticed before you started doing oldest profession or like performing like sex work comedy specific routine well I I want to talk a little bit about the history of uh stand-up comedy specifically and sex work because they're actually intertwined right burlesque uh, stand-up comedy and burlesque are both American art forms that come out of the vaudeville scene in the like 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And so some of our first stand-up comics were also sex workers and burlesque performers. Mae West is a famous example of this. You know, uh, we did an episode on her and she's fucking amazing. She was one of the first strippers in this country and also a sex worker and also a socialist. She's just a badass. So, yeah, one of the, uh, you know, Mae West, I think, is a is a famous um, person who comes out of and embodies both of these traditions. Right. Like she's a one liner stand up comic who was also a sex worker and, and performed out of the burlesque tradition and is sort of playing like a clownish clownish sex worker and gypsy rose lee is a is another famous stand-up comic and sex worker she's one of the first burlesque performers and she comes directly out of out of vaudeville and kind of like rides that wave as as vaudeville stops being profitable and is replaced by by burlesque and you see this kind of schism during that period of time where in in vaudeville and in burlesque there was a lot of gender bending and like elements of queer culture that were celebrated but when stand-up comedy and burlesque becomes more stripping those gender differences sort of become solidified and it you know that's when you start to see male stand-up comics performing in strip clubs where you know strippers have sort of stopped talking and this this happens at the same time that a lot of our gender roles become kind of like metastasized which is you know the 1940s 50s and 60s and that's when that's when sort of the the culture shifts and we see that divide and then you know even out of that tradition into the 1960s you have like you know Lucille Ball characters who I I would argue are more in the you know, Tina Fey tradition of like, you know, anti, uh, anti-sex worker, um, but still female comics. Right. And so I think this idea of female comics being new, uh, is a, is a problem. Like we've been there literally the whole time. And I would also say that like horror phobia kind of like misogyny is, is waters that we all swim in. But I think that elevating and highlighting sex worker storytellers of all kinds right including stand-ups 
is is the way to combat that where it's like you I, I the best stand-up comics right make fun of themselves and so you know sex worker comics we're still the butt of our own jokes but we're but we become fully dimensional people active agents in our own lives which i think is really really important do you think the sex work jokes stem from misogyny and horophobia in a place that's predominantly male i definitely think that like misogyny is celebrated in stand-up culture right i think that there's a um, machismo there uh and like a kind of a cowboy culture and also like cowboys you know i think that uh, you know stand-ups spend time with sex workers that we are sort of both living on the outskirts of polite society right like stand-ups stand are clowns right we are gestures in court you know singing for our supper alongside sex workers and courtesans and 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 i think we're both rule breakers but i do think that it is sort of like misogyny and you know toxic masculinity this seeing gender before people that i think divides I was I was shocked and disappointed when I realized that that stand up comics were not coming to the defense of sex workers in our shared fight for free speech, right, and freedom of expression on the internet. Like Sesta Fosta is an existential threat to freedom of expression on the internet, and comics should have been able to see that alongside sex workers, and they didn't. And I, you know, and I think that that's. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot of blind spots there. I hope I answered your question. I feel like I'm just going on and on. Yeah, we're really just here to guide the interview. I mean, you're totally welcome to just come on the show and just oh, just speak. talk, just monologue, just, just yeah. monologue. Yeah. I don't, yeah. That seems I don't I don't know. It's yeah. For that, your listeners should tune in to the oldest profession podcast. If you're looking for just an uninterrupted monologue of Caitlin, so. <laughs> You said that um, through the podcast, you became more radicalized. Is that how you made the transition into the decriminalized sex work organization? Yeah, I guess kind kind of, sort of, right? Like, I mean, like all things, I, I'm, a, I'm a person who believes in mixed motives and a lot of things being true at the same time. So I was certainly spending more time in political spaces and sex worker rights spaces but I was doing so like as a stand-up comic right so I went to the Desiree Alliance in New Orleans and performed and you know an early reading of Contagious and was there sort of as a as an out sex working stand-up comic right of like hey you know you guys have events maybe I could perform at them you know trying to sort of build my own audience as a as a performer and that's where I met Rob Campia and he was somebody who had come out of the marijuana world and had had some success with ballot initiatives and getting making an illegal thing legal. And I had come, my experience in the political world was with this like progressive political consulting firm. I'd run field campaigns in a lot of different states. And so I understood quite a bit about how the political machinery works and that you need money to buy things. And so we like, I, I remember we were at the Desiree Alliance and I, I met him um, and I was there like as a stand-up comic, but I had done, you know, some political work and I like sketched out on like a cocktail napkin of like 
this is what I think the strategic political alliance for decriminalizing sex work looks like. And it was a combination of mainstream organizations on the left, like Planned Parenthood, ACLU, uh, Human Rights Campaign, right? Like that sort of coalition and leveraging the libertarian uh, angles on the right to defang this issue and recognizing that like even pro-life people aren't against agents of the state arresting grown-ups for doing adult things with each other right and so we sort of like sketched that out and then didn't you know like two years went by and sort of like nothing happened after after that uh and then SESTA-FOSTA happened and with SESTA-FOSTA again like being this sort of like existential threat to freedom of expression on the internet the donors that Rob had a pre-existing relationship to through marijuana became suddenly very very active and so Rob called me and said I you know I want to move forward with this and we put together um, a summit in San Francisco to bring sex worker advocates from all over the country to the table to talk about this like infusion of resources and what a national strategy would look like but instead of doing that we got wrapped up in Rob's uh, reputational liability. And now after two years of working at decriminalized sex work, doing work that I am really proud of, right? I think that we, we made a lot of inroads. We injected our narrative into a lot of spaces that they otherwise wouldn't be. I can work with Rob, but I cannot work for him anymore. And so I'm getting out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. So with the oldest profession, obviously, you're trying to destigmatize sex work, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like how we're doing. Do you see yourself doing any more political activity through the podcast? Um, you know, I feel like changing the stories around what it means to engage in this work is political. I think that, you know, we're we're planning an event where we're we're working with sex worker advocacy groups from from across the country in five different cities working towards a, an event January 25th, which is really exciting, where we're partnering with organizations that are doing a lot of political advocacy work. But I, you know, I don't I don't know. Like I I'm not going to hire lobbyists. I'm probably going to spend less time at you know, political conferences, talking to legislators. But I do hope to create a scene of interconnected folks that are all doing some kind of work to help destigmatize and eventually decriminalize sex work. You know, I want I want my listeners taking these stories into their PTA meetings and book clubs and uh, you know, their their sort of civilian life and being like, hey, maybe we can't arrest our way out of this problem you know maybe we should stop thinking in those terms yeah absolutely being in all these political spaces and a lot of people no matter kind of I think where they fall on the political spectrum when they first hear sex work they're like you mean like trafficking and prostitution yeah so what are your go-to talking points for convincing or not convincing but explaining what decriminalizing or legalizing or just 
doing something well, different with sex work. I think I think one of the the you know I feel like one of the most effective things that we can do as uh, persuaders is is listen, right? And so I think it's really important to understand where folks are coming from and have some empathy that this conflation of human trafficking and and you know like quote unquote slavery is the result of an more than a hundred years of propaganda coming from a variety of different sources. You know, like the 1910 Mann Act was also called the White Slave Law. And it's the first federal anti-prostitution law that applies to citizens. And it makes it a crime to transport women over state lines for quote-unquote immoral purposes, which they sell to the public as like, being sold into sex slavery. But what they mean in practice is engaging in voluntary interracial relationships. And so this conflation is very old. It's all wrapped up in our country's long history um, of racism uh, and the, the criminal justice system and moral and moral panics. We've seen similar moral panics recently. Like I feel like what's happening with QAnon right now is not dissimilar from the satanic panic of the, the 1980s. And I think we're going to see similarly banana pants legislation out of it. But, you know, people... People have a, I don't want to call it natural just because it's, but it is common. You know, it's its very difficult to combat a simple story with a more complex one. And the simple story is there are evil people out there that are trying to kidnap our children and to do sex things with them. And the more complex story is most child sexual abuse happens with family and friends, people that the child knows. It's just a level of magnitude more complex than bad guys that we can find and catch, right? And so I think having some empathy for, you know, people wanting that story to be true because the alternative is so much more is so much more terrifying, right? Which is that these horrible crimes are being perpetrated by people that you know. But also... Like, people understand the difference between farming and slavery. And I feel like the difference between voluntary adult sex work and trafficking is that is that stark. I think that talking about labor trafficking outside of the sex industry is really, really important. Um, and I think that that's a great way to break the narrative on, like, what this looks like. And I do think that the the story of sex trafficking kind of gets in the way and blinds us to other forms of violent exploitation um, in our economy. And I also think talking about the gap between what police departments say they're doing and what they're actually doing. And I feel like the Robert Kraft case was a really good example for communicating with conservative lawmakers because they could identify themselves with Robert Kraft and they could see how arresting and threatening federal charges for 19 legally licensed masseurs was not a rescue operation. Would you mind briefly explaining that case for anyone who's oh, unfamiliar? Sh- oh, sure. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it, uh, I want to say, I think I, over a year ago, so Ro- Robert Kraft, if you don't know who he is, and you shouldn't because like, you know, like who gives a shit, but he's, he's an old white billionaire 
who owns the Patriots team, which is like a football team uh, in the Northeast somewhere. And he splits his time between wherever that is in Florida. Um, He's a widower and he's a huge Trump supporter, right? He's like, he's a Republican dude. And so he's somebody that like lawmakers, you know, conservative lawmakers can identify with. And he was one of 200 people that got caught up in this multi- multi-location sting in South Florida, where I think five different law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, by the way, spent months getting you know police officers to go undercover. They threatened a bomb scare for all of these Asian-owned massage parlors in South Florida that were occasionally offering happy ending massages at their otherwise perfectly legally licensed business and there were like there were no community complaints these are like there were like five different locations that were all in like strip malls and it was fine and so law enforcement agencies they you know like i said they threatened a bomb threat they installed hidden cameras and they spent six months recording what sounds like just like the world's most boring porn and they got a list of like 200 people and robert Kraft was one of them who allegedly went to one of these massage parlors and in addition, you know, uh, paid a monsieur to massage a different part of his body. And so one day they did this like coordinated sting where they, they shut down, you know, all of these places. They arrested everyone on the premise, you know, squad cars and SWAT teams were called in and they charged 19 women with multiple felonies and threw themselves multiple press conferences claiming that they'd broken up an international sex trafficking ring. And then Robert Kraft's legal team got involved and the whole case fell apart. And the prosecutors actually had to admit in open court that there was no evidence of trafficking. And they kept saying words like illegal sex acts because like hand jobs just doesn't seem like panicky and dangerous enough. But yeah, so that's and just recently, Rob, uh, Mr. Kraft won his his case in court. And when when I talk about this case, I make sure to tell people that like the only thing that was unusual about this was that such a high profile, wealthy person was involved. This is what quote unquote anti trafficking stings look like in this country, which is you know law enforcement roided up breaking into immigrant owned businesses and threatening people that aren't hurting anyone and charging people with with multiple crimes right this is not a rescue operation this is not people on the side of good this is your tax dollars being used to ruin people's lives and publicly humiliate people it also feels very counterproductive to be arresting the people who would be the victims in this situation right well if you don't arrest them, it's hard to bully them into going along with your narrative. So, you know, if you're not, yeah, <laughs> since you're not actually helping them, if, if you don't, if you, if you don't have charges hanging over their head, then why would they, why would they cooperate in your sham investigation? That's fair. So we've yeah. covered some more serious topics as we always do, but Emily loves to ask the fun questions. So I'm going to let oh, you do yay. that, Emily. <laughs> it's true. So... Going back to your podcast, who is the biggest badass besides yourself, of course, that you've talked about on the show? (laughs) You know, I got to say, like, 
one of my personal patron saints, and we we talk about this, was one of the first episodes we did. And it was Veronica Franco, the 16th century courtesan in Venice. She was, she's somebody that I sort of still, that I continue to go back to. And she's got like a really delicious mix of like having left a lot behind, but also being a person from this such distant path. Like there's enough space there for me to project a lot, if that makes, if that makes sense. So yeah, Veron- Veronica Franco is still one of my favorite, favorite old pros. So, and old pros. So I know the podcast is old profession and you've used old pros several times. Is that an actual term or is that a term that you coined? It's a term that, it's a term that I coined that I really think should take off. I think that we should be embracing old pros as like a way that we refer to each other. I feel like it's a big umbrella term, big red umbrella term, right? That could mean anyone from, you know, Hooters waitresses, full service sex workers, people that dabble, right? Um, I think it it is a, a term of respect and endearment for the legacy of this profession, right? Like the, you know, the oldest profession. I feel like people that step into this work are stepping into like an old and ancient tradition and an, an old and ancient energy. And I, you know, like kind of like the crone archetype you know like I think I think that we we deserve more respect and so yeah old old pros is is something that I I coined but I I think people should use I mean we can use it now I love it what makes you an old pro like how do you qualify oh man I feel like it's it's stepping into that ancient mystic sex magic and using it to make to get resources Right. Whether it's money or a place to live or it's, yeah, use of sex magic. I've definitely learned a lot about sex magic doing this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, you know, it's out there. I feel like it is it is genderless. You know, all kinds of all kinds of people engage engage in this work. But I feel like that energy is the same. So would you consider yourself an expert on the history of sex work now? At this point, yes, and I, you know, I, I continue to, I, I will continue to, to be, and continue to, to deepen my knowledge, you know, like with every, with every episode of the podcast. But we've also hired, you know, Dr. Charlene Fletcher is also an expert on old pros, and there are a lot of like, you know, PhD historians out there that are are an expert on this work. People that have that have written books, but. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been studying and reading and talking and thinking about how sex workers have fit into our our historic into our stories, right? Into our our history um and what shaped the society that we that we know today. And so, yeah, absolutely, I would consider myself an expert. So, how do you go about studying and reading up on whoever that you decide to talk about that episode? For like for season, you want to talk season three or do you want to talk the other two seasons? Because let's talk season three. Yeah, season three. Yeah, yeah. Season season three is awesome. So you know, I have a call with the whole team, right? So myself, uh, Irene, uh, Marie, and Charlene, and we talk about who, what kinds of stories or what kinds of figures we really want to to talk about. So this season, we're starting with. Victoria Woodhall, who is the first woman to run for president um, in this country in 1872. And so, you know, those those three episodes should be out, you know, by the time this podcast comes out. 
and we wanted to do that because it's an election year and looking at what happened to Elizabeth Warren and looking at, you know, the, the memory of what happened to, to Hillary Clinton. Like when Donald Trump called, you know, Kamala Harris a nasty woman, he is doing so in this ancient tradition of calling public women whores. And so, you know, I really wanted to to double down on that history. So we opened with Victoria Woodhall. The next um, episode that is coming out in November, we're doing a three-part series on on Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. And then in December, we're doing a three-part series on Lilith, this sort of like ancient biblical character. And every season we try to do like a like a super old like mythical old pro like season one it was Ishtar season two it was Basil Teotl and this this season we're we're doing Lilith but we we sit down and we sort of talk about the the shape of the season and then Charlene uses her tools as an academic to do a deep dive and build out an annotated bibliography of all of the primary sources and secondary sources that are available on that figure and she compiles all of that research and then I I read through it uh, and we have like multiple talks where like Charlene and I will just get on the phone for hours and like talk about the the stuff that's available, what's out there, what's intriguing about this story, what's the context of that story. And then Charlene goes off and writes our, our blog entry that we use on the website and in our newsletter. And I go off with Marie and try to sort of like shape the story. Um, and then we do two recording sessions. The first one we sit down and it's just Marie and I. And I, I try to not have Marie do like any research beforehand. I need her to sort of like play the role of the audience, right? Which is someone who's interested in this work and she's heard me talk about it for a long time, but she's not been like in the weeds with Charlene and I over over these characters. And then I, you know, take like two, three hours and just tell her, who these who these characters are, who these figures are, the context in which they lived, and why I think their story matters and what we can learn from them. And then Marie takes that gobbledygook garbage of, you know, an insane person ranting uh, with an obsessive mind and shapes it into three cogent separate podcast that she then goes back and does sound design whether we have some original recordings which we we absolutely do for the Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera episode or just you know some musical interludes that try to capture the feel of the time like for the Victoria Woodhall episode because we don't have any original recordings from 1870 because that because the technology didn't exist so you know like so so that's that's based and then the the second round of recordings are the intro and outro for every episode, any pickups that we need to do to like bring pieces together if we're like cutting out some rant that I did in, in the middle, which happens often, or, you know, doing the the commercials that we have to do and the housekeeping that we do for every podcast. So I, I hope that answers your question. I hope that wasn't too nerdy or too like deep. De- did you, I don't know if you wanted that level of detail, but that's how we produce the podcast. That's why it takes so long to produce this podcast. I did want that level of detail. I want all the details, okay? Don't you worry. All right, good. So from doing a sex work podcast, what do you think is the most interesting thing that you've learned? Like your favorite thing to bring up in conversations? God, I just, you know, I I feel like I, I knew going in, but it continues to just blow me away. Like, we are fucking everywhere. We're everywhere. We're in every palace. We're in every subculture. We're in every country. Sex workers, old pros are everywhere. 
uh, because we really always have been just kind of like a hodgepodge of all kinds of people. Um, all kinds of folks tap tap into this and and play in this world and 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 play with this energy. And it's and so yeah, I feel like so how how intersectional this is. I feel like sex work, specifically like the decriminalization of prostitution and like sex workers as people, right? Like that concept is just a philosophical key that opens so many doors. But that's like a much better answer than what I would have answered, which is oh. there's LaCroix. There's LaCroix in sex dungeons. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes me so happy. So, <laughs> Oh, that's great. No, that's beautiful. Is there is there a period of time where sex workers are... The word that's coming to mind is worshipped. Yeah, absolutely. We we talk about that. The Ishtar episode, the Tlazaltiotl episode, the Phryne episode, and we're about to get into it with the the Lilith episode. But the the story of the denigration of sex workers is really the story of the rise of misogyny and the patriarchy, right? We denigrate the temples of Ishtar and we denigrate uh, sex workers and temple priestesses at the same time that we replace, you know, fertility goddesses with the male gods of war and ultimately the, the, you know, the Abrahamic, you know, God, the Abrahamic religions, right? Of like Christianity, Islam and Judaism, which are patriarchal. And so, you know, I feel like the, the story, that story of the gods of war dominating essentially these ancient fertility goddesses is the origin story of whorephobia because I think it is ultimately a denial of our undeniable power. Yeah, I we were listening earlier to the pilot for Oldest Profession and there was a comment in there about how they were introducing money to primates and yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah would, <laughs> would you mind talking about that just a little 100%. bit yeah because here, sex work is older than money it it predates us as a species this is something that we see like a variety of species of monkeys engage in and also penguins and i think my my favorite like demonstration of this is there were a bunch of economists at Yale and they had they have money they fuck you money and one of the things that they did with it is they have this this captive you can't you don't call them a school groupings of of primates but they they had these monkeys in a cage right that had a social dynamic and they introduced the concept of money to these monkeys right where they like we, they would give them a, a token and in exchange for a token they could get like a grape uh, and monkeys love grapes uh, or cucumber or, like whatever they were selling at like the little monkey store and so the second that that the concept clicked that these like shiny tokens could be exchanged for something of value. The second that that concept like clicked, the first thing that happened is that a boy monkey gave a girl monkey a token and then they had sex. That's the first that's the first activity that monkeys engaged in. And I was like that's how deep this is. God, I love that. Incredible. I love that so much. Yeah. Give it yeah, hands up for the economists. <laughs> yeah. Just the whole 
Imagine having that much fuck you money. I mean, that definitely was not the result they were expecting, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know what they were expecting. And like hand it to scientists for, you know, today that were like, yep, this is, that's what's what's happening. I feel like scientists from the 19th century would be like, they're confused. That's not bad. Uh, But yeah, it was good stuff. Yay, Yay for science and universities doing fuck all they want. Holy God, I love that. I love that. <sighs> yeah. Good stuff. Emily, do you have any lingering questions? No. Well, one lingering question that I I think when I was scrolling through, have y'all ever done research on Mary Magdalene? Ah, we have not yet done an episode on Mary Magdalene. I hope I hope to do that. It was kind of a toss-up between her or Lilith this season, and I I really wanted to I really wanted to do Lilith. <laughs> So yeah, Mary Mary Magdalene is like on our list alongside hundreds of other old pros that we want to cover. But the basic basic story of Mary Magdalene, right, is like like many of the old pros that we cover, uh, it's like don't get distracted by the like did she didn't she fight, right? Like so her, you know, the the historic character Mary Magdalene of like whether she existed may or may not have been an old pro, but the space that she occupies in the the like the religious um myth space she is derivative of you know priestesses of Ishtar and other old pro characters like for sure and the catholic church during the the period of time uh, and and Jesus was like very clear about his acceptance of um and tolerance for for old pros now the catholic church turns Mary Magdalene into a more explicit sex worker in order to discredit her at the same time that they're like women should not preach because like Mary Magdalene's whole thing was that she was like the most effective preacher and all like we wouldn't have a Christian religion today if it weren't for the processing of Mary Magdalene like Jesus died and then Mary made the religion right like that's what happened So, but the Catholic Church was like, women should not talk. And they had to deal with the existence of Mary Magdalene. And so they turned her into a public woman to kind of discredit her. And then medieval theater just like went nuts with that trope. And like people and Mary being the symbol of like somebody who could, who could sin so far, right. Who could become a sex worker and then come back into the arms of the church and be forgiven becomes this sort of like folk hero, of uh, of the you know sort of religions of of the time so that's like kind of the basic story of mary magdalene so like the did she didn't she confusing but we're fucking claiming her and i think you should too yeah no we did an episode talking about that to a oh, dominatrix oh, you get it. i'm sorry i didn't know no 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 perfect uh it was actually a huge relief hearing you say that because as we were editing it i was like Yo, like, I hope this isn't blasphemous in any way. Right, right, right. Yeah, you're fine. So I was just like, oh, man, this is not something that I don't want to mess up. So I was just trying to very be very thorough. But, yeah, we did a really interesting episode where we talked to a dominatrix who grew up. Her father was a Southern Baptist minister mm-hmm. and just talked all about that. So I just didn't know if maybe it was, like, controversial so y'all didn't touch that. And then I was going to be like, 
fuck. <laughs> no, 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 no. We didn't. We're not avoiding controversy. We have an episode coming up about Melania Trump. So like, that's not. We're not worried about that. Uh, yeah, tune in. Um, on election night from seven to nine p.m. Eastern time, Dr. Charlene Fletcher and I are going to be dishing on the first lady. So that's that's what that's how we're spending election night. So if that's the kind of content you're looking for, I wouldn't call it counter programming so much as like adjacent programming. I love that. That's that's oh. what I want to do. Otherwise, I'm just going to be drunk and sad. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, other yeah, it was just like the alternative to election night is like you can watch pundits you know, do the math over and over again or you could tune in to Dr. Charlene Fletcher and I fucking talking shit. Uh-huh about melania trump love that amazing well i don't have anything else if you have anything emily i also don't have anything else amazing so caitlin thank you so much for being on the show and coming and talking to us this was such a fun episode to do you're so much you have like great energy oh thank you so much for having me i really i really appreciate it and thank you so much for your your enthusiastic support of the podcast you know we're Sometimes sometimes it feels like shouting into an empty cave. So it's nice to know that some of those echoes uh, are being heard and appreciated. <laughs> we'll listen to The Oldest Profession. Caitlin, how could people find you or the show on social media? Oh, yeah, for sure. We are aggressively online. So you can find me at Caitlin Bailey. Uh, it's K-A-Y-T-L-I-N Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find the podcast at Old Pro Podcast. And you should check out our website. There's a lot of great stuff and links to everything at The Oldest Profession podcast.com perfect and we have a website too candygirlpodcast.com where you can find honestly everything that you need to find about the show again thank you so much for being on here and we will hear from you guys next friday candy girl podcast fuck me daddy (laughs) 